overview study of the message of second book of the Bible, second book of Moses. Great theme of deliverance and of the consequent service that the people of God, having been delivered, uh, then owe unto their Lord. It's a great book that, from a historical standpoint, establishes for us the beginnings uh, of the nation of Israel. This really is the birth of the nation. We talked in past days concerning the importance of that nation as part of the fulfillment, uh, I believe, of the ultimate promise uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was that promised seed that was given to Abraham, who ultimately is the Lord Jesus Christ. But before there could be a Christ, there had to be an Isaac. Before there was a Christ, there had to be an Israel. Uh, because it is out of that promised nation uh, that as far as the human lineage of that seed is concerned, the Lord Jesus, He had to come. So this is a vitally important book for us, not only from that historic standpoint, but the theological foundation of our redemption as well. As I've emphasized, many of the themes of salvation, of deliverance that we see ultimately fulfilled in that work of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, are uh, explained to us, uh, illustrated for us in this great deliverance from the land of Egypt. Now, in these past couple of weeks, our attention has been upon the people themselves. Who is it that God delivered? Uh, and this book gives us a great description uh, of what grace has done for God's people. Uh, wonderful descriptions, beautiful uh, analogies that uh, give us some insight as to how God views the people that He has redeemed. Our attention has been upon the fact that they are the children. The redeemed are the special children of God. Sons of God, they are the firstborn, enjoying a place of great privilege, of great rank uh, before God. God's people are special. And they stand in that unique family relationship under the Lord. Uh, they are a unique people as far as the covenant is concerned. God identifies Himself as their God, and they are identified as His people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Uh, a unique and a special uh, position that they have of all of the peoples of the earth. All the earth is the Lord's. But yet God's people are identified as His prized possession. Uh, they are that royal treasure. Uh, and that ought to be an amazing and far-reaching truth in our hearts if we can come to grips with that uh, outstanding notion that we as the people of God are special uh, unto the Lord. Uh, and we were focusing last time, and this is where we bring our attention this morning, to the fact that God's people are regarded as a royal priesthood. Uh, God's people stand in this, in a very real sense, mediatorial uh, relationship uh, between the rest of the world uh, and God uh, Himself, a responsibility uh, then that the people of God have to bear witness uh, unto the Lord. Now, chapter 19, at verse 5, verse 6, really through 
uh, verse 8. Fundamentally important statements here uh, in the book of Exodus. Let's read these and I'll make a few comments this morning. Now therefore, uh, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure. There's that royal possession that we talked about last week. Unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a kingdom consisting of priests, a nation of priests. Uh, We can see the abstract idea of that word kingdom, a royal priesthood, a kingly priesthood. I think all of that is uh, implied in that statement. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. And now the implication of that, and holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken we will do. And Moses returned the word of the people unto the Lord. A royal priesthood and a holy nation. Now notice the emphasis there. The responsibility of the people of God as this royal priesthood. Uh, to evidence that holiness. The idea of holiness is separation. They are distinct. They are different uh, from all of the peoples uh, of the earth. And in this holiness, there is a very real imitation uh, of the Lord himself. God gives the command. We see that in Leviticus particularly. I am the Lord. I am holy. Therefore, be ye holy uh, as I am holy, uh, the Lord says to his people. Uh, In our holiness, we are, uh, in a very simple sense, being imitators uh, of God himself. Uh, We must know the Lord. Uh, We must know what God is and what God is like. And then as we find ourselves by grace in this unique relationship with him, uh, it is our obligation to be like him. Uh, This is one of those communicable perfections. Uh, of God. Obviously, he is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeably holy. Uh, He is completely other, distinctively other, and separate from all that there is. Uh, There is nothing about God that is mundane. Uh, He is distinct, and he is different. Uh, We often use the expression that he is wholly other. Uh, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is completely distinct. Uh, and different from all that there is in creation. Uh, And in that sense, obviously, we cannot be uh, as God is, but uh, we are to imitate Him. And as a royal priesthood, uh, there is a distinctiveness then that must characterize uh, the people of God, a holiness evidenced uh, ultimately here in that obedience. And I think that's what we see at verse 8. When the Lord sets this uh, condition before him, and this is, uh, I think, not uh, without importance here. As you look at the beginning of verse 5, this is set in conditional terms. Uh, There is a sense uh, in which the covenant is unconditional. Uh, That covenant promise that has the Lord Jesus Christ as that ultimate seed that is promised, uh, that is unconditional. Uh, And that is going to come. There is no way that the fulfillment of that covenant promise in Christ was going to be abrogated or set aside or uh, altered in any way. Uh, But our individual, the individual participation uh, in the enjoyment and in the experience of that covenant reality, 
uh, is indeed conditioned uh, upon faith and upon our obedience unto the Lord. Uh, and there will not be, and there cannot be, uh, any personal experience uh, of that covenant blessing apart from faith and apart from uh, apart from the obedience unto the Lord in every aspect. And I think if you look at the uh, development of this, one of the themes that we'll address here before too long uh, is the concept of the land. Where is it that God was delivering these people, taking them from Egypt and bringing them ultimately into this land that was promised to Abraham, uh, that land that was flowing with milk and honey? Uh, now that, and I believe there is a sense in which even that land promise uh, was unconditional. Uh, that was a promise that God was going to give to His people, uh, and that was inviolable. But yet, nonetheless, the individual experience uh, of the enjoyment of that land and all of its theological uh, implications of rest in the presence of God uh, in terms of that land uh, was conditioned upon their faith and upon their obedience. Uh, remember what Psalm 95 says. Uh, there at the end, they did not enter in. Uh, they did not enter in. Speaking of this generation that was wandering around in the wilderness, uh, ultimately for these 40-odd years, uh, they did not enter into that rest, into that land, because of unbelief. Uh, there is not going to be, and there cannot be, the personal experience and the personal enjoyment of all of the covenant blessings that find uh, its ultimate focus in the Lord Jesus apart from that faith. So, yes, this is conditional. Uh, and to put this in terms, uh, as some of our dispensational friends do, uh, in, in terms of Israel's rejection of the promise uh, that was given to Abraham is total, absolute nonsense. Uh, I wonder if there's a comprehension of uh, the very truth of the gospel. Uh, if ye will obey my voice indeed, uh, here is that obedience unto the covenant. Uh, and don't just throw that, uh, that term aside. Uh, I, I, I encourage you, please, and I try to emphasize this to you, uh, that some of, these, so, so, some of these words that we just read so, uh, so, so casually uh, are, are just filled with theological implications. Uh, and you've got to plug in uh, all of that theological uh, truth that has led up to this statement. Uh, as, as we see this term covenant, uh, if you obey my covenant, and I would suggest very simply that to obey the covenant is tantamount to obeying the gospel. All right, The covenant ultimately is the very gospel of grace. Uh, and uh, that must, I say, be understood. To reject the covenant is to reject the gospel. Uh, th this is why there's such a great emphasis all the way through the scripture uh, in the Old Testament upon the obedience to that covenant. Uh, this passage in Jeremiah just just passed through my mind. All right, uh, so let's let's take a look at uh, let's take a look at this because it illustrates, I think, the point that I, I want to make. It'd be amazing if I would think of some of this stuff when I'm preparing. That would be good. Uh, in, in Jeremiah chapter 11, uh, you, you look at verse three, for instance, verse two. Hear ye the words of this covenant, and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeyeth not the words of this covenant. Uh, verse 4, Obey my voice, middle of the verse. 
uh, and do them according to all which I command you, so ye shall be my people, uh, and I will be your God. Uh, verse, verse 6, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant, uh, and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. You can see here's Jeremiah. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of years after the very context that we are considering, but he's taking the people back to this same episode. Uh, and the emphasis here upon obeying the covenant. Uh, and there is a curse. There is a curse that is placed upon the one that disobeys the words of this covenant. Uh, now, I say when you plug in all of this theology of the covenant, uh, why is it that Jeremiah is placing such a great uh, uh, force upon this statement? And I submit to you that uh, disobeying the covenant... Uh, that he is talking about here was tantamount to disobeying and rejecting the very gospel of the seed of the promise, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's why there was such a seriousness here uh, upon obeying or disobeying uh, the covenant. And to put the very words that the, Lord Jesus, that, the, that the Lord uses here, obeying and disobeying, in terms then of a work-oriented uh, uh, salvation, I say is absolutely ludicrous. Uh, and it's nothing more than an obscene, and I use that word, an obscene surface uh, interpretation of what the Lord is saying here. Uh, we must obey the gospel. All right? And what is obeying the gospel? Obeying the gospel is believing Christ. Uh, obeying the gospel is repenting of our sins. Uh, and I say that is what is involved here at this point. So yes, I say there's a conditional statement here. Uh, and the Lord puts the gospel before them. Here is Moses, if you will, giving the invitation uh, to, uh, to this word. And now, how do the people respond? And all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Say, so if you've got a Schofield Bible, you have one of the most ludicrous notes uh, that has ever been penned by a would-be theologian at this verse here. But I have one. Fess up. I, I want to read it if you have one. Look at, I'm amazed here. Look at all of this. I swear. Yeah, sure you did, right. <laughs> From her bedstand, right. You're still in Jeremiah. Boy, I'll tell you what. I'll ask that question before next session meeting and we'll see what's going on. Is this the old or the new one? Exodus 19. I don't use it enough to really... Yeah, yeah. You can find it in mine. Mine's a little more warm. It was a graduation. It is old. All right. Where is the note here? What under law was condition? You see, here, here's part of it here. Uh, what under law was condition? Now, this is a note on. Uh, don't misquote it. I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm reading right here. It's just one thing that you don't have to misquote. Uh, now, here, here's the verse that we're taught. Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice. What under the law was condition is under the grace freely given to every believer. Uh, the if of verse 5 is the essence of law as a method of divine dealing and the fundamental reason why the law made nothing perfect. Uh, the Abrahamic and New 
covenants minister salvation and assurance because they impose but one condition, faith and obedience. Uh, let's see here. This dispensation, fifth dispensation law, this dispensation extends from Sinai to Calvary, from Exodus to the cross. The history of Israel in the wilderness and the land is one long record of the violation of the law. The testing of the nation by law ended in the judgment of the captivities, but the dispensation itself uh, ended at the cross, so forth and so forth. Where's the statement that I want exactly here? You know, that, that's that's expressing the, the, the notion there's some place here. Where, where does it say this? They rejected the promise. Where is that? Maybe that's in Genesis 12. I have read this, you know. I got one of these. I have a Schofield Bible. It is. <laughs> I, I have one that I received when I was 12 years old. And... Uh, it, it was it was a big day, right? I, I often say that getting your first Schofield reference Bible is the fundamentalist version of bar mitzvah. Uh, I, I was I was a proud a proud little boy when I got that. I was a proud little boy. Well, I don't want to take time here, uh, but but you you can see you can see the excuse me you can see the idea uh, that they're after they're taking that word. Uh, if and obey as being a rejection of grace, you see, a rejection of promise. Uh, and, and that is, I, I say, absolutely ludicrous. Uh, the, the idea here is, uh, at verse 8, when the people says, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, that, that's a rejection. All right, we're going to forget grace. We're going to forget the promise, and, and we'll do this. What, do, what does he really expect? What, what, would, what would we think here? You tell me. All right, you tell me what would happen. Here's the Lord. He sets this down. The Lord sets this stuff down to them here. All right? And, and, and now the people says, Hey, you're tricking me, God. I'm not... No, sir. I'm not going to be doing this stuff. I'm, I'm going back to Abraham. And, and they just fly in the face. Lord, we're going to disobey. I, is that what He wants them to say? Lord, I'm going to disobey this stuff. Now, therefore, bless me with promise. It's ludicrous. It's ludicrous. It's what we must say. God puts the word to us, and there must be obedience to that word. Uh, I, I really don't know what they expect the people to have said at this point. Here's God revealing himself in his holiness. Here's God revealing this covenant blessing to them. And they understood. All right, I submit that they understood all of the, all of the pregnant force of that word covenant. All right? Uh, this covenant of Moses is not essentially different than the covenant with Abraham. It's not essentially different than the covenant that was made with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the same covenant that has the same seed uh, to be promised. Uh, they understood that. And I think the great difference between what modern interpreters tend to do is they take things in isolation and... Well, I won't get into that right now. Plug that in. Plug that in. Uh, I, I, I say if the people would come to the Lord at this point and says, hey, you're tricking me, right? You're trying to trick me here uh, into going this way instead of going... It's absurd, all right? It's absurd. Uh, this must be the response of the people of God. When the Word of God, when the Gospel is put before us, we must obey the Gospel. Uh, and that is the evidence and that is the mark of that holiness.
So there is the responsibility, uh, along with this privilege, uh, along with the privilege of sonship, along with the privilege of being the special people of God, uh, there is a responsibility that demands a holiness, and as we'll see in the next point that I want to make, a service uh, unto the Lord. All right, so that's the final statement then that I'll make here, that the redeemed are to be special servants. We are special people. We're the sons of God. Uh, we're a priesthood, but we are also the redeemed are special servants, reflected here in this obedience that is demanded. Now, the Lord makes this clear from the very beginning. The Lord makes this clear from the very beginning. Uh, if you go back to uh, Exodus uh, chapter 3, let's just take a look at a few of these statements here. When the Lord is calling Moses and telling Moses what he is going to do in delivering these people, tells him what's going to happen. Look at verse 12. And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee when thou hast brought forth the people of Egypt, out of Egypt. Ye shall serve God upon this mountain. God was delivering them, and the mark of that deliverance was going to be their service uh, unto the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 23. And say unto thee, let my son go. Here's what you're going to tell, uh, what you're going to tell Pharaoh. Uh, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I'll slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Chapter 7, verse 16. And thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God uh, of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. There's the service unto the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 1 says the same thing. Let my people go, that they may serve. All right, so God is making it clear up front. All right, God is making it clear right up front that this redemption and this deliverance is unto servants. Deliverance is unto servants. Redemption is unto servants. And I think one of the remarkable things here uh, is that the word that God is using to describe the service that is to be rendered unto Him uh, is exactly the same word that describes their service and their bondage uh, unto the Egyptians. Same word. Same word. Just as you were servants to the Egyptians, by redemption you are going to be servants unto the Lord. Uh, same kind of service. It's exactly the same word. It doesn't mean, uh, and it doesn't in any way suggest that the degree of servitude is going to uh, be lessened. No, no, no. What is different is the master. All right. What is different is the master. Uh, and Christ makes this clear, right, that we are going. Everyone serves someone. You are going to serve someone. Uh, who is it that we serve? We think we're independent. Uh, we think we have this independent uh, resolve about us, but it's not true. Every man is a servant to someone, either a servant unto God or a servant unto the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, there is a master that we all have. And the greatness of grace here is that we are delivered from the bondage and the servitude of sin. We are delivered from the bondage and the servitude of uh, this cruel taskmaster, and we are brought in now to the service unto the Lord. A former bondage that was cruel, a harsh, and this one now that is most pleasant. Uh, and this to me is one of the outstanding themes uh, of, of the book of Exodus. 
Here's deliverance. Yes, here's liberation. Yes, and we tend to focus upon this liberation uh, and this release from bondage. And that's there. And what a wonderful theme is there in terms of that deliverance and that liberation. Uh, but liberation is always uh, with limitations. All right? There are always limitations uh, that uh, are part of that liberation of the gospel. I think of this, uh, this text, this great invitation uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, gives in Matthew uh, chapter 11. You know well. Uh, you know well these wonderful statements. Come unto me, uh, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Uh, there's the invitation. You that are under this great burden of sin and despair and whatever else, you come to me. Christ says, and there will be a liberation. Uh, I will free you from that burden. I will eliminate uh, that bondage from you. But in so doing, in so leaving that one yoke, in so leaving that one burden, what do you do? You take another yoke. You take another yoke. You take my yoke. You get rid of that yoke. I will liberate you from that yoke, but then you take my yoke. Now, a yoke is a yoke, uh, and I, 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 certainly, I, I certainly am not a farmer, uh, and I have never in my, my life ever done anything with, a, uh, with an ox or uh, a horse in, in this regard or a mule or whatever it is you do, but I've, I've seen pictures, right, and I, I've read about you put yoke on these things and you plow behind what, whatever. I don't know how it... You've done it, right? You're shaking your head there. Making fun of me like you're Mrs. Farmer Lady. <laughs> right. If I thought Carl ever did that, I'd. Yeah. You did? Well, you want to talk about you? You got behind a cow or what? <laughs> you want to stay away from it? <laughs> well, that's that's a good incentive, right? That's a good incentive. Uh, but, but, but we all have enough sense, right? Carl can testify to this firsthand. Uh, but the rest of us have enough sense uh, to, to realize that that yoke that placed upon that animal uh, dictates what that animal does. It's what controls that animal, uh, making it go this way and making it do that. Uh, and there's limitations. There's limitations. And that is the imagery that Christ is using. You come unto me and we're going to change yokes. It's not that, that you're going to be free from a yoke. We're going to change yokes. And my yoke is easy. See, My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. It's going to be pleasurable. Uh, this stuff outside... What, what makes the difference is the relationship that we have to the one that is governing uh, and controlling our, our, our movements and our actions. Uh, the law now that was on the outside is now on the inside. Uh, and that which once seemed to be a burden and that once which seemed to be so heavy and, and terrible uh, and, and harsh against us is now on the inside of us and we have a new perspective and a new relationship to that law of God. We're not freed from the law, you see. Oh, we're freed from the law's penalty. Yes, there's our justification. Uh, we, we are uh, freed from the law as a way to achieve life with God. That's a wonderful freedom. But 
uh, we've been put in different relationship with that law. The law is now upon our hearts. And it becomes the desire uh, of the heart, the pleasure of the heart, to do those things that are pleasing uh, unto the Lord. But it's still a yoke. The law prescribes our behavior. And as the people of God, as the people of God having been delivered and having been redeemed from this bondage of sin, we are now put within, and I'm going to use the same word here, it sounds harsh the way we use languages, uh, seems harsh the way we use language, but I want you to, I'm doing this to focus and to emphasize how Moses was saying this. You are eliminated from the bondage of the Egyptians, and now you are put into the bondage of grace, you see. You are put under the bondage of grace. Same, sounds strange to us. Uh, but it's grace now that inscribes uh, where we are and what we do. Uh, it, uh, it, it is that which defines our, our course of behavior. It's grace that enables the holiness, but it doesn't exempt us uh, from holiness. And this liberty uh, is not licensed then to go and do whatever we want. Uh, this liberty uh, is uh, designed to please uh, to please the Lord. We're not our own. You see. We are not our own. Uh, we're bought with a price. right? You know the language the New Testament uses here. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, uh, what we do in soul, what we do in body, uh, is to be that which pleases the Lord because every part of us belongs unto the Lord. He is our Master. He is our Master. He is our Lord. Uh, and immediately upon uh, the deliverance from sin, we are placed then under His control and under His domination and under His rule. Uh, we serve Him. We serve Him. Uh, and we are still slaves. Uh, we are still slaves. A redeemed man is a slave unto the Lord. But the beauty is uh, that our Master is now so good. And our Master is now so concerned for every aspect of our being. But nonetheless, I say, he's still, uh, there is still that prescription uh, of the grace that there is uh, in that relationship. Now, as we come to, uh, as we come to this section, all right, as we come to this section in Exodus, and, and this is not without significance, uh, and, and I know we've touched on this before, but I want you to see this in the context. After chapter 19, we have chapter 20. And chapter 20 is now the recording of those Ten Commandments uh, that we've been going over in our catechism all right, week after week here. Here are the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, that summary statement of the moral law of God. The Ten Commandments, that summary statement of what behavior is that pleases the Lord. Now, the placement of this is not, I say, without significance. Where are the people? When the Lord inscripturates, and I'm not using the word reveals here, all right? I am not saying when the Lord reveals the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 is not the revelation of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were revealed, the law was revealed a long time before this. As beginnings, uh, indeed, in the very garden. So I'm not talking about that initial impartation of revelation here of truth. But when the Lord inscripturates, when the Lord now records and puts this law before the people, it, I say, is not without significance as to where it is in the argument of Exodus. It's not without significance. Where are the people? 
At this time, the people are at Sinai. The people are at Sinai. Where's Sinai? What is Sinai? Go back to Exodus chapter uh, chapter 3 that we read just a moment ago. What was going to be the evidence that God had called Moses? What was the evidence that God was with Moses from the get-go in this entire operation? Verse 12, When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And that's where they are. That's where they are. They're at this mountain now. And the fact that they are at this mountain, where God had given Moses the promise at the very beginning, was an evidence of the redemption of grace. It was an evidence that God had kept His word to Moses, that God delivered these people, and now here they are. And as they saw the surroundings of, this, uh, 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 of, of Mount Sinai, it was a token, and it was the divine, I told you so. Their very presence at Sinai at this time was the divine, I told you so, that every promise that I gave to Moses, every word uh, of covenant uh, promise that I set forth, uh, every act that I did in delivering you from that place of bondage has been fulfilled. Here, here you are. I told you you would be here. But they are there out of Egypt. They are there out of Egypt. They have been delivered already from that iron furnace of affliction. They have been delivered already from the place of bondage. The redemption has already taken place. And to a people then that have already been redeemed, God says, look at the law. Here's the law. Here's the law. I'd be concerned here. And I, I, I dare say Schofield would be right. Schofield would be right. If Moses had the Ten Commandments on those two tablets, tab, tablets of stone, and he took them with him into Egypt to deliver the people, and he read this before the people and said, this is what you've got to do. And if you do this, then God will deliver you out of Egypt. You do this and God will deliver you. But he didn't do that. didn't do that. God delivered them how? By power. God delivered them by blood. God delivered them by grace. And now, having been delivered by divine power, having been delivered by the blood of the sacrifice, having been delivered by the grace of God, now having been delivered... He says, now, you're my redeemed people, you're my special sons, you're my prized possession, you are to be holy. Now, let me tell you what that involves. Here is how a redeemed people is supposed to live. All right? The law is given to a redeemed people here to prescribe for them, to define for them how it is they are to conduct themselves as a redeemed people, as the recipients of grace, as a prized possession unto the Lord. We must live differently. We must be like Him. Well, the law, have we not emphasized uh, to the point of uh, boredom for you, perhaps, uh, that the law is that reflection, the moral law is the reflection of the very character of God. You want to be like me? Well, I'm telling you what that means. You see. Here's what that means. Here's what I'm like. Here's what pleases me. Uh, and God set uh, for them in the very Ten Commandments. That summary statement, uh, that summary statement of loving the Lord with all the heart, with all the mind, with all the soul, and loving the neighbor as yourself. All right, there are the two great commandments uh, that Moses sets down: one in Leviticus, one in Deuteronomy. 
that's the all-encompassing requirement that God has for His people to love Him with all of their being and to love their neighbor. Now, here are the specifics of that uh, in the Ten Commandments that then encompass literally every other uh, commandment in the Word of God. Uh, I, I don't have time to develop this, uh, but let me just suggest that. And this is a good, uh, a good little exercise for you as you, uh, as you do your Bible study. As you read your Bible and you see the Lord's instruction to do this or to do that, just take the pause and take the time. All right, God is telling me to do this specifically. Under what commandment is that? Under what specific... That is a specific application of what of the Ten Commandments. And that is a specific application of either loving God completely or of loving my neighbor as myself. Uh, and do that. And I think you'll find that there is not a specific commandment. There is not a specific commandment. I don't care how, uh, how picky you may think it is. That is not going to fall ultimately under one of those two broad commandments, loving God completely or loving your neighbor as yourself. Every one of them. See? Every one of them. Uh, and, and, and don't take the, uh, the, the high degree of specificity uh, that you have in the Word of God as, uh, as an excuse, well, that's not my particular circumstance, so therefore, you know, it doesn't apply to me. Uh, no. You take the high degree of specificity that you see in the Word of God, uh, and that's a reminder then to me uh, that my relationship to the Lord and my relationship to my fellow man is going to affect and must affect the most mundane affairs and the most mundane personal experiences of my life every day. Uh, everything that I do is to be a reflection of my loving God or my loving my neighbor as myself. One of the Ten Commandments. So I, I just make that suggestion to you. Uh, as you read through your Bible and you see all this stuff, just take the time and ask yourself, now how does this relate to that moral law? We say it's the summary statement. Well, make it the summary statement. Uh, and how does that fit? And if we can learn to relate all of these, these specific things to that broad statement... I think it will show us uh, more of the use that this law is to have uh, in our day-by-day experience. But my point here, right, and we'll have to close with this, uh, the, the point here is that God redeemed His people to serve. And that service uh, was to uh, submit to His Lordship, to submit to His authority and the demands that He makes upon His people. And this also involves this service, and this is going to open up then a whole new uh, a whole new course uh, of study that I, I will call to your attention but uh, only be suggested. Uh, it, it opens up then the whole focus of the service and worship. The whole focus of the service of worship. The last part of Exodus deals with the tabernacle. All right, Here's the tabernacle and the whole stuff of the tabernacle was put in terms of serving. And again, the same word that describes their making bricks in Egypt the same word that describes their service unto the Lord in the worship of the tabernacle. Uh, a great emphasis here uh, upon the service of worship. And we've, we've seen that emphasis uh, here. Kearns reminds us of that, that our worship is service. Well, that's biblical. All right? And the book of Exodus deals so profoundly with this notion that our worship is service unto the Lord. Uh, and we'll deal with all uh, I don't say all of the tabernacle significance, but I want you to get at least uh, a basic picture uh, of what's involved in this whole tabernacle 
set up uh, and what it teaches us about the service of worship. Uh, great, great lessons here. All right, let's close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do uh, rejoice in every remembrance of your goodness and grace to us. We're thankful what we can learn from these uh, far historical events that uh, are, are so indicative and representative of your dealings in grace with us, your people. Lord, teach us the lessons that are appropriate for us. Uh, help us, Lord, to see ourselves uh, as uh, those that are redeemed by grace and brought into this necessary uh, role of the servants of God to live lives that are holy, to live lives that are pleasing uh, unto our God in every way. So bless uh, this study to our lives and to our hearts. Meet with us now in the uh, worship hour. Give us a sense of your presence. Speak to us from your word. We ask in Jesus' name.